I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, you'll find yourself run aground and stuck on a sandbar. You've gotten everything off the boat that you can, but you're still stuck. What do you do? Well, that's where salvage comes in. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times, a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Hey, Todd, thank you very much. Uh, I hope everything is going well with you today. Everything's going great. So can you tell me what is today's episode about? Uh, today's about uh, salvage. Um, it's something that happens in boats and it may be something that happens to you. Um, but I tell you a little bit how to prepare for it, how to uh, be ready and, um, what not to do and basically kind of go over the whole idea and tell a few stories about, uh, one being salvaged and another one being the salvor. So it's a good, uh, it's a good practical, uh, comment and podcast today. Great. Take it away, Scott. Yeah, thank you very much, Todd. Um, Today, I'm just going to talk a little bit about salvage. I've been on both ends of this law, and sometimes it was like the Keystone Cops, and other times it, it was very dangerous. The salvage law is a principle of maritime law, whereby any person who helps recover another person's ship or cargo in peril at sea is entitled to a reward commensurate with the value of the property salved. Maritime law is inherently international. And although salvage laws vary from one country to another, generally they are established conditions to be met um, to allow a claim of salvage. The vessel must be in peril, um, either immediate or forthcoming, and the salver must be acting voluntarily and under no pre-existing contract. And the salver must be successful in their efforts, though payment for partial success may be granted to if the environment is protected. So that's the way the law reads. The first time I came in contact with this is I was on a charter um, out of St. Thomas, and I picked up some people who actually lived in St. Thomas, um, they had a home there, a vacation home there, and they were from England. I remember distinctly as he was some sort of consultant or, you know, you'd be called in the companies about the, you know, where the future of their company was going to go. We had some really great conversations, and I thought, oh, no, this is, you know, pretty cool guy. I really like this. This is like, this was the first year I started chartering on my own. I think this charter might have been my second or third charter. So when I first got down to the Caribbean, I, as, as many of you know from the other podcasts, I was delivering a boat from New York City, and I came down. I got a, a captain-slash-mate job. Um, kind of a weird thing is, is this woman was running a 51-foot uh, Outlander, and um, she was a licensed captain but really wasn't really a captain, but she sort of managed the boat um, and cooked. So she was really good, good cook. And um, so I was sort of her mate slash also captain kind of thing, but mostly, you know, mate kind of thing. I did all the work, um, hard work, raising sails, etc. You know, typical stuff. So I got to see the British Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and these, this was the area that I was, um, for about a year, I was accustomed to seeing. This is where all our charters took place. This is where I learned um, the ins and outs. I learned which 
passages to take. I learned where certain, you know, shoals were and reefs and all the rest of it. And it was sort of, um, it was very mechanical to go from point A to point B, this, that, and other thing. Well, then <clears throat> I bought my boat, which was a CT-54, um, at auction, which is another long story. And um, I fixed it up. I got it all up in working condition and spent a ton of money in it. And uh, th then the next thing is, is I started my own charter business. And this was my first year. So, and I think, and this is, I'm, I'm, I'm recollecting this, is that this charter with the Oxford professor and his uh, young girlfriend um, was maybe the second or third charter I'd, I'd done by myself. And they wanted to go to St. Croix. They had, house, they had a house um, on St. Thomas that they were renting, and they wanted to spend a week on the boat and go to St. Croix. Um, in the Virgin Islands, a lot of people, I don't know, don't go to St. Croix. The cruise ships do. But a lot of sailors, you know, don't make the trip across to, to St. Croix. And um, I, it's an interesting island. Um, it's a little bit more industrial um, than you'd like to have or like to think about. Um, there's an oil refinery on there, and there's a few other, a few other things. So it's, uh, you know, it, and it's more like America. That was my other thing. It's more like America. So, but anyway, so I had never been there before. So I had a nice, you know, I bought a brand new chart in St. Croix. I had a little book, you know, cruising destinations in St. Croix. And um, picked these people up. We did our little charter. We went over and uh, we started going um, to little places. And then there was a little bay that we wanted to go down and anchor in um, for the night. And being cautious and, you know, having my, my new boat underneath me, I'm being very, very careful. I checked the chart. Um, I saw that there was a path which was to come straight between these two buoys, um, which marked the entrance. And then I would hang it left, and I would go about four or 500 yards, and then I would hang a right, and I would be in a channel. Uh, and the channel would take me all the way to the back where um, it was uh, a beautiful, beautiful old a schooner sitting back there. So when I'm at the entrance, I look back, I see the schooner, I've got the charts, I'm thinking, okay, should be fairly accurate, we should do this. So I come in through the, the buoys and um, go down, I see another buoy which marks the left-hand turn. I make the left-hand turn, giving the buoy, you know, enough way um, to my port side to to just, you know, imagine myself in the middle. And all the time I'm looking at my depth meter and it's go, it's starting to go off like insane, like, no, don't go. And the next thing I know, I, I bounced off the, off the bottom and I thought, oh no. And then I bounced off the bottom again. And then I took the boat out of gear and dropped the sails and then I, I cut the engine off because this was, I had the sails up because it's actually quite a long way it, through this bay to get to the back of it. So sailing made sense. And, and, and the next thing you know, I come to an abrupt halt. I had run aground. Now, the next steps that I went to take were, of course, um, trying to back out of it trying to get the nose of the boat to swing around, trying to empty water, water out of my water tanks, um, getting people off the boat. I went through a whole list of stuff. I took my anchor, I put it out with my dinghy, and um, I tried to haul the boat around that way. I worked in a panic, panic work for three, four hours. And what I found 
was literally, I was sitting at the bottom was literally like a waffle. I was sitting in a hole and I couldn't get up over the next little hump. So the whole, the whole bottom was like a giant waffle. Now I had gone in over this waffle by, I don't know, 30 feet, 40 feet, maybe, maybe a little bit further. And I couldn't get the bow swung around. I couldn't, I couldn't lighten the load. I waited for the tide. And of course, anybody sailing the Caribbean knows the tide is like eight inches in, in the Caribbean. It's nothing. Okay. But eight inches was going to be a big thing. So I got everybody off the boat. I got my professor over. There was a hotel at the end of the bay. Uh, my mate got them over there. They, they were very happy and they, they understood. So that's my sense. That's how I, I, I was, gr- I was on the ground. Okay. I was grounded. So anybody's run aground knows it's, it's really a helpless feeling. So, um, I went through the night on the boat, trying to get things moved, trying to get the boat moved. Couldn't do it. Finally, I made a call to a salvage company in St. Thomas and they came out the next morning. Now I did this after consulting with my insurance provider and my insurance provider were the ones who negotiated with the salvage company to get me out of this bay, which as it turns out, my charts were accurate. However, the bay, because of the last big storm, big hurricane they had, had completely silted up and that all that waffleness that I had was now uh, permanent and nobody could get into the bay. And that big schooner that I saw in the back, that was done on the highest tide in the year at full speed under tow, completely light, just to get it back there. It's That boat is never, ever going to leave, period. And they managed to bounce it over the bottom. So the place was already pretty shallow. But I, I had, you know, my draft wasn't, you know, deep. So I, I was able to, according to the charts, I should have been able to do it. But what happened is all the buoys had moved, as well, and no, I didn't know this. This is a local knowledge thing, but all the buoys had moved, and literally, I needed to be far more to starboard, and I needed to go deeper into the bay before I made my port turn, my left-hand turn, and that way I would have avoided all this grounding and waffle bit on the bottom of the of the of the ocean. So anyway. I had the insurance company, got them on the phone. They contacted the salvager. We talked. And of course, this is much to my embarrassment. I mean, I probably shouldn't be embarrassed, but I was embarrassed that I had run aground. And, you know, you're talking on channel 16, you switch channels, and then you're going through this whole process. So we were on channel 78. And we're going through this whole process of them coming out and find, you know, doing the whole thing. And, of course, everybody that's a contemporary that I know that's sailing a boat, hears the call, the salvage call, and boom, there you go. Uh, everybody knows, and everybody has an opinion. Um, any case, so the salvage company came out. They, they had a diver. He dove. He sort of plotted a course. And as it turns out, I was, I was like one big hump away from getting the boat out of the bay and I just there was no way I was going to get over that hump because it was it was just I mean it was like a foot difference and and if had I gotten caught up on that I would have you know really been kind of screwed so I got all my guests back on the boat the salvager in a small tugboat Charted a plot, charted a course for us to get out of the bay. We got out of the bay, and he towed me um, all the way to Charlotte Amale. And the guests were actually quite thrilled. This was fun. This was like they 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 adopted a really great attitude about you know hey this is boating this is this is hilarious. We're having an adventure here. So they put us on a buoy outside of the sheriff and the coast guard station. And we were not allowed uh, 
um, to move the boat off the buoy until um, uh, the money was paid by the insurance company. So as it turns out, I had to reimburse the guests. I reimbursed them for the whole charter, you know, thanked them very much and apologized profusely. And they were really nice. They were really sweet. And um, anyway, off they went. So I was on the boat alone with my mate, and we started to, um, you know, clean up and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And we stayed, literally stayed on the buoy for about seven days. And um, which was really weird because I didn't have any water. I had, I had, you know, taken all the water and, and gotten it off the boat so that I could lighten the boat up. And we didn't have, I didn't have any water. And they wouldn't let me go get water at the, at the marina. And um, so it was kind of a pain in the butt. So, you know, I was buying gallon jugs of water and we were using that. But anyway, that's a, that's that's the story. And I mean, seven days later, I the the payment was made. Um, the salvage was, I think, the insurance company paid like seven grand, and uh, we were free to go once we we had our paper. And that's how salvage works. We were in distress, and um, they came. And it was contracted, and that's the value of the boat and how they figured it all out was through the insurance company, and there we go. So we were able to do that. Now I want to go back years later, or years after that incident, and when I first came to Los Angeles, as many of you know, I'm a screenwriter and a film producer and director. And um, I was living in France at the time, um, working on films and, and screenplays, etc. And I was brought, I was invited and paid for to come to Los Angeles to write a movie. Um, on the Grateful Dead, um, wrote the screenplay, started to produce it, but it never went anywhere. Um, that happens a lot with a lot of projects, and um, far more than I'd like to think about. But while you're going through all this sort of stuff, writing and all the rest, I had bought a boat and I was living down in the Marina del Rey. You know, I'm a boat guy. I'm, that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be in the marina. And so I needed a job. I needed, I needed some more money. Okay. So I got a job working for what was then called Vessel Assist. Many of you know it as uh, Boat US. Now, this is not an ad for Boat US, and it's not an ad for Vessel Assist if they even exist anymore. This is just me um, talking about an experience of what we provide it um, from Vessel Assistant and, and also as a customer and as a boater, what you should expect and how you should conduct yourself and, and, and you know, all the little parameters that go around um, working in the towboat business. Because basically you have a contract with them you pay whatever it is a month, $1,500 a month. And um, if you're out on your boat and you have a problem and you need help, we can get up middle of the night and go out there. And you'll, you'll, you'll get the service that you need. It's a great concept. Um, in Marina del Rey, we have what they call Santa Monica Bay. So you run, you know, from... Uh, out to Point Doom, sometimes around Point Doom, go to Ver Ventura, you know. So we have a big bay. Catalina Islands are on the other side. So there's a there's a lot of um, a lot of possibilities out there to get in trouble with. So the normal stories for us were people running out of fuel. Uh, crazy, isn't it? Um, a lot of fishermen. You know, in little fishing boats, they, there's a lot of people with lake boats. They trailer them in, they go out, and they sit in Santa Monica Bay, kind of not realizing that they're actually 
in the ocean. And, you know, sometimes they fill up with water just because of the waves. And, you know, they end up using a lot more fuel than they think they're going to use. You know, if you're like out on Lake Havasu and you're fishing and you're just floating along, you may use your little electric motor to move you around a little bit, but, you know, it's flat out there. So you're just going to just, you know, float along. In the ocean, you've got waves and you've got swell. So there's a lot of up and down. There's a lot more maneuvering of the boat. You, it's It's rare the day that you can just sit there and just not, you know, have the engine on and be getting yourself into a better position. So people misjudge this and they run out of fuel. So one of our jobs was to run out and deliver fuel. Now, we had two boats and kind of important um, because at this point I had thousands and thousands of miles of sailing. And I had sailed and run big yachts, small boats, everything, everything under the sun. I had run tugboats, all of everything. Uh, I had worked as on an oar boat and d- done a bunch of different things. And um, so I had a lot of experience in handling a boat, but being a vessel assist captain, I learned so much about boat handling and it improved my skill in boat handling like you wouldn't believe. I mean, yeah, can you dock a boat? Sure, great. Can you get the boat out of the dock? Yeah, sure. After that, you're all in a straight line, right? Uh, That's like a big deal to get in and out of the dock for most people, especially if you don't do it very often. But to do it, with a boat on your hip, that is, tied to the side of your your vessel, and stick the nose of that boat in, untie your boat from their boat, keep your boat on the dock tied up, and slide their boat into the slip. End of story. Safety at last. Takes a lot of skill. So we had two boats. One we called the Ant, which was this little wood boat that uh, was a little tiny tug. It looked like a little tiny tug. It had a Detroit Diesel 260, I think, in it, and it had an outdrive. Now, the outdrive is really key here. Um, if you're not familiar with it, that's sort of, it extends the transmission and stuff, extend out from the rear of the boat, and you're able to move the prop left and right by the wheel. That's how you steer. There's no rudder, in other words. Well, this this little boat, I after you got the hang of it, this little baby could do anything, could move anything. I, I had moved 90-foot uh, yachts. I did a Nordhaven 90-foot yacht that was super heavy. And this little ant, boy, she could just move it. I could put it where I wanted to. It was. I had utter, complete confidence in this boat. And it was great for the harbor. And this is what we did. So sometimes if you have your vessel assist thing, you know, you can get moved from, a lot of people have to have this done. You know, they they need to get their boat to the boat yard to have some work done or whatever the case may be. So you hire vessel assist. They come to your slip in the morning. We, we used to move 10, 20 boats a day. Pick up the boat from the slip with nobody on it and then just take it over to the boat yard, drop it off. When they were done, we'd go back, pick it up, and put it back in your slip. You were none the wiser, but except for you got the bills that was done, and Vessel Assist would, would help pay some of that stuff if it had to. And um, so then we had a second boat called this, we called the Santa Monica, which was a straight-up fiberglass boat, about 31 foot, with a cabin, a little cabin down below, very light, um, diamond plate oh, all over the deck, um, and a uh, another 260 Detroit diesel in it, and but this was a fixed prop, and I learned more driving this boat than I think I've learned 
driving any boat in my life, except for maybe my first boat, Steppenwolf, which was a Hirschhoff design. I think that this, I learned more about boat handling and how to handle boats because I didn't have the precise maneuverability. This boat was our long distance towing boat. So if your prop was fouled out at Point Doom, I would run out, pick you up, throw you a line, and tow you right out of the kelp. And that's what we did. Okay? Um, if you were a fisherman that was like 40, 50 miles out, we'd come out and give you fuel in this thing. And we could fly. This was a 25, 30-knot boat. Fly along. And, you know, you could... You could knock your dentures out on this thing for sure. It wasn't a great boat for working inside the marina, but it was a great boat for rescue, and it was a great boat for salvage. So using this, this boat, I mean, many times I would leave Marina Del Rey on a call, and here's, a th here's a, just a little note. It's really good if you know where you are, folks. I mean, have have an understanding of your GPS, okay? Tell us what your where your location is, because I used to get people to say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm you know I'm right off of Big Dukes, man." Like, okay, <laughs> if I didn't know where Big Dukes restaurant was off of PCH, I, I wouldn't be able to find you. And how far off of Big Dukes are you? I mean, I have spent hours looking for somebody at night in fog only to find out that they were completely in a different part of the bay. So it's really important, boaters, that when you go out there is to know your location and really know your location is at, all the time. Make a mental note, okay? Make a mental note, even of just the general uh, longitude, latitude. Just, make, just say it to yourself. Go about your business. Have fun. Come back hour later, make a note, you know, whatever the case may be, but keep, keep your eye on this kind of stuff. Because if something does happen, the, we can always find you. Having to go by landmarks, and this is what I find mostly, is people are really inaccurate in their landmarks. And it's very difficult to understand people over the radio at times. And um, just by the nature of it. And if there's a, if people out there have heavy accents and stuff, it just makes it 10 times. But numbers, we got numbers. Okay, because I can punch in your latitude, longitude, pull up a course, and I know exactly where you are, and I know how long I'm going to be there, and I can call you and tell you and go. So running out of fuel is one of the big things. Um, that's mostly fishing boats. Sometimes it's sailboats, too, that run out of fuel. Um, I've had a number of sailboats that, uh, coming back from Catalina in the middle of the night, um, are afraid to sail into the marina and need assistance. And that's, that's fine. That's, that's called judiciousness, which I appreciate very much. And I would just go out and grab them take them in. And also, another thing I might add is that a lot of times you have diesel engines on these boats. And um, if you've run out of fuel in a diesel engine, there's a good chance you're going to have to bleed the engine out. Um, because bringing you fuel is just not going to help because you're never going to get the engine started until you bleed the engine, get the air out of it. So, um, at that case, even though you've run out of fuel, you're still end up going to be towed. Now, the maximum speed for towing somebody is between six, seven knots. That's kind of the top end. Um, you know, and you put out a big long line, you attach it to the cleats on your bow with a bridle and gently start pulling the boat until you can get it up to speed. And the length of line that you use is you try to have that boat sit just on the other side of the last wave that comes underneath you. So if you look out the back of the boat, out the stern, and I would play out enough line 
to keep that boat that I'm towing right on the shoulder of where the swell or wave is breaking, okay? So it's like, it. I don't want it to be in front of it because what it's going to do is it's going to go down real fast, then the boat, then the tow line's going to snap, and pull it up, and it's going down. It's going to keep repeating that. But if I keep it just there, there's this kind of resistance, and what happens is um, it'll settle, and you'll end up with a little arc that dip of the line that dips down into the into the water. And you know, once everybody's comfortable, they're on their boat. You're on the radio. I've got a couple of radios, and you know, if they have a problem, they can always you know, give me a call. Then I come in t- to the marina. I shorten the line as I'm getting closer and closer. I shorten it even more when I get inside the marina. And then when I get into uh, the basin, I will take the line off and tie the boat up to my hip, what we call put it on hip, which is your the side of your boat. So we set it so it's if it's a sailboat, it's going to be the sailboat's going to be in front, okay, of the boat of the towboat, where the stern will be just about right at the pilot house. This way, the the prop and the rudder are behind you. Now, one of the advices that I was given, and it's absolutely true, and it goes on for even handling your own boats, is that. We talk about prop walk, okay, walking your boat in a direction using the prop and, and the rudder. But a lot of times when you're towing like that, you can't, it's no, it's, prop walk doesn't actually help you, okay? My whole thing is, is take the prop out of the equation. You know, get the prop to start, get yourself moving a little bit, and then use the rudder. The problem with these little towboats is, like the Santa Monica was, is that the rudder was so small was very hard to get, um, you know, enough um, emphasis on the rudder to move it. So you had to really always be positioning it. You always had to be able to, to compensate very quickly. And this way, I would use the rudder on the sailboat to help me, and I would just provide the power so that I would have the guy on the boat steer the boat and then I would provide the movement the motor the push to get the boat into a slip so that's kind of how that worked and and another problem we often had with batteries people's batteries would go so I'm just going to go through like this whole litany of of like you know batteries you know it's buy good batteries spend the money okay make sure you have a good charger all right keep an eye on your batteries don't have all the lights on when you're out fishing i cannot tell you how many times i've had to go out because somebody's batteries are dead you know and we have a charger we you know portable charger just go put it on put it on the boat hook it up engine fires up thank you very much good sign the paperwork i'm leaving you go only have the guy come back, you know, like six hours later and say, oh, my battery's done. You know, have good batteries in there, fresh batteries. Keep them charged, especially if you put your boat on a trailer and you take it home. Take that battery out and put a charger on it. Keep it trickle charged, okay? And then after a year or two, go get yourself a new battery. It's so important because now today boats run a lot of electricity. And they put a lot of demands on batteries, And I'm not going to get into the whole technical thing on on batteries and what batteries to have and what batteries not to have and, you know, how to figure the amps and all the rest of this kind of stuff. I think there's other people um, that do podcasts and businesses and stuff like that, that um, this is what they talk about. um, And I think it's great. Um, I'm not, I think it's great. It's just not particularly a subject that I care to get into very often. But I will say that on my own boat, I had um, four 8D golf cart gel cell batteries. These are the big 8D gel cells. I had uh, I had actually eight of those, and then I had 
uh, two um, truck truck type um, starter batteries, like car batteries, but these were for trucks. And I had two of those, which were exclusively just to start the engine. The rest were house batteries, essentially, although I could link them all up and um, use them to start the engine, but I never had to because I also had a generator. So I, I, I had a plethora of sources for my, my electricity. So a lot of times what happens when, when you're doing this sort of salvage, this isn't really salvage, this is service because there is a contract. And if you go back to the conditions um, that allow to claim salvage, uh, that's what this is. But a lot of times what happens, people, people will do stupid stuff like try to sink their boat. And um, we had a guy try to sink his boat off of Point Doom by cutting all the exhaust hoses, drilling a hole in the bottom of the boat, like, like a one-inch hole. And um, it was, uh, what was it? It was a um, bayliner like a Bayliner 26 or something like that, right? And and he tried he tried to sink this boat. Well, he got a lot of water in the boat, but what he didn't realize is is fiberglass boats don't sink very easily. And much to people think boats sink easily, they don't. They're they're very they're very hard to sink. Um I don't know if if you've seen the movie Speed 2. Um, that took place in St. Martin, uh, Kino Reeves, and, 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 and the, there's a thing where the ship is going through the bay, and it, it's running over boats, right? And then it runs up through the town, and the town's uh, church bell falls down on the bow of the boat. There's that big climatic scene that, that happened. Well, anyway, they had this boat, this fairly large ship, and they kept trying—they bought— different boats and they had stunt people on them and they tried to run over them. I, I actually was in the harbor watching all this go on in St. Martin, which I found just absolutely hilarious. And, um, and, and so what happens, they hit this one boat and the whole backstory is, is even funnier is because the old guy that they bought this boat from, this boat was not worth more than $1,500. They paid him $15,000, and he was the happiest man alive because he sold his boat. He got $15,000, and he was off that sucker. So they they ran directly in it, and they had people jump off the boat at the last minute, you know, part of the movie, and they're filming it, and the boat just went down, and it popped straight back up. And they were so perplexed on how, because they were hoping that the boat would just sink or would break up and sink. So they tried a catamaran. And one pontoon in the catamaran went down, then popped straight back up and almost hit one of the stunt people with the mast as it flipped back up. Uh, but the, it was just a disaster. But I know from experience, the sinking of boat is really hard. So we were out there to get this boat, and we had a really big swell. And if uh, my California folks will will know this for sure that out there at Point Doom, once you once you kind of get out past Point Doom, the uh, the water gets to be real big, real fast, and um, it can be pretty rough out there when you have a, a strong uh, westerly wind. And um, so this boat was bobbing. The stern was underwater, and it was sort of bobbing vertically up and down. All you could see was the bow. So being a diver, I, I am a master diver um, for many, many, many years. Uh, we went out with airbags and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And we're in the water, out in the open ocean, attaching the bags. Okay. Down on the bottom. These are big, giant pillows like airbags okay and they're made of uh, heavy duty material so that you know when you fill them up you know it's a good thing we had all the hoses set up and all the lines and we were running the compressors off the santa monica which is why the santa monica was really great 
boat because it has nice deck space, lots of built-in kit to do it. Plus, they had a big giant RTO pump that you could take and drop into the boat and basically pump almost any boat dry within minutes. So I get in the water. I got the one thing, one bag tied up on the port side. But this boat is bobbing up and down, up and down, up and down. And uh, I got over to the other side of it. I'm trying not to have the boat land on my head or my shoulder or, or in my hands or whatever the case may be because it's just going all over the place. There's diesel fuel, or in this case it was probably gas, um, in the water. And we're working and working, and I finally got the other bag two bags done, got them hooked up, got them sitting up, okay, started to get the boat up so that its gunnels were above the water. But literally, the waves are pushing it. So it's just like, you know, you get it up and then it moves three, four feet forward. You get it up and it moves three, four feet forward. So we took a tow line and we put it on the bow of the boat and we put the RTO pump in the hose to the pump in the boat and it's it's like almost all submerged except for its gunnels are just above the waterline. And then we took off. I told the, the guy, uh, Ted, who was with me, we started to drive the boat and drag the boat, okay? We just dragged it with the bags and everything underneath it. Just drag the boat. And then we drug it for about a mile, okay? Which gave us enough stability to pump a good amount of the water out. We stopped. It was a little bit stable. I went back in the water and untied the bags, brought them up on the Santa Monica. Then we literally dragged the boat all the way back to the shipyard. They took, they take it out immediately. We go and look at it and we see this idiot had drilled a hole in a fiberglass boat with a one inch drill bit. Okay. And you can see where he cut. The boat was perfect. He just couldn't pay for it. And so the insurance got all over his case, wouldn't pay the claim, and um, the bank repossessed it, and he went to jail. But we got the salvage on the boat. So that was like a forty-five, dollars $50,000 boat. And we ended up making about $30,000, $25,000 on that. And a lot of it has to do with where it was, what it was doing, you know, the fact that we had to employ a diver, um, you know, all these little details begin to add up. So this is, this is kind of a crazy, this is a crazy thing. Okay. This, this whole try to sink your own boat, forget that. There's not a good plan, folks. I don't care. Set your boat on fire. Not a good plan. These, these industry experts are experts for a reason and they will, they will find out the truth. You know, just let the boat get repossessed. And I've done that too. Uh, in Vessel Assist, we're often asked to go re help um, repossess boats. It was a little side business. I would find a boat. Um, I would get a list once a week or so of boats that needed to be repossessed. And I'd go and repossess them for, for the company using the Vessel Assist boats. And then, you know, of course, that pays for the boat. And we keep on going. But maybe one of the biggest things about the salvage business is when a boat runs up on the beach. Once it's up on the beach, negotiations begin between the salvage company and the insurance company. And this goes for whether your powerboat got up on the beach, your sailboat blew up on the beach, or your container ship rolled up on the beach. It's a big, it's a big thing. There's a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, a lot of environmental practice that has to take place because you can't, you got to be very careful about spilling stuff like diesel fuel or oil or any, anything like that. Um, you know, a lot of boats, they have propane on them. You know, this is all this stuff you know, adds up to hazardous materials and you have to be very careful. 
So here's the thing that I want to say. First of all, it helps to have a contract and a subscription to whatever boat towing company you want. In the long run, it's going to save you a lot of money. For example, if you have Vessel Assist and, and I come out and I spend two hours coming out and dragging you back or three hours, whatever the case may be, it's not going to cost you anything. All right. If I have to do that, that's like 200 bucks an hour. That's, I, I got $1,000 right there for that. So that's one of the keys to having that. It's having, having a contract that you can get a tow service is well worth it. And, you know, a lot of these guys that work these vessel assist boats um, and tow boats got a lot of skills. And they can help you, you know, find the right mechanics um, and the right services that you're going to need for your boat. So I, I think it's a really important, important thing to have. So here's the other small tip of advice is um, to stay out of the clutches of a salver. Make sure you have a contract with one of these other companies and understand your rights and let your insurance company do the negotiations for you. Um, it's very, very key because the insurance, the insurance company is the one that's going to pay. And all they have to do is they do a quick check and say, okay, this is how much it's going to cost. And there are adjusters that are on call and they'll look at your policy and your boat and know how much it should cost to haul off because salvers are not necessarily, um, you know, they're trying to try to get as much money as they possibly can for whatever job they have to do. But I hope you never have to deal with one and I hope you never have to deal with vessel assist. Um, I've had vessel assist for 20 years and I've worked for them. Um, and I think it's just, it's one of those important things to have for a local, for a local guy, for a local boater and for our listeners that are in England and Canada and, and France. And there's other services that are out there that, uh, are very, very similar and, uh, well worth the security for it and take it from somebody who's not big on insurance, but that's one of those insurances that uh, I think is really valuable. In summation, uh, take care of your boat, take care of your batteries, take care of your fuel, know where you are at all times, be able to converse clearly on the radio, know the difference between channel 16, and which is a hailing channel, and another channel which you can talk on, um, Boat US and those companies usually have their own channels like 78 or 81. So know how to switch your radio back and forth. Um, talk to the people, give the proper information, give your, have your cards ready. Make sure you keep your batteries up on your boat, always maintenanced. And also try not to run out of fuel when you go out there and be a knucklehead. Okay. Um, insurance company to do your negotiation. And I hope you never, ever have to run aground or run afoul out there and need this kind of assistance. But if you do, it's out there. Thank you. Oh, that was very educational, Scott. So I take it that boat assist is kind of like AAA for boats. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, there's Boat US. There's um, there's a bunch of companies, and and for our listeners in England, there are companies do the same thing there. So I highly recommend you know paying it, being paying the fee, um, getting the service because boy, you never know when you you need it. And um, it's one of the few insurance things that I actually believe in. So, Yeah, it's one of those things where you use it once and it pays for itself. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, did a, I did a thing where um, I actually, out of Santa Monica Bay, I went out to what they call Santa Monica Island. And, um, or no, I'm sorry, it's called Santa Barbara Island. And it's an island that's about 40, 50 miles straight out of... Uh, Marina del Rey and you pass you literally pass Catalina on the on uh, on the port side and you go out and a lot of boats go out there to fish 
and um, it's it's an absolutely beautiful place. It's incredibly remote. Um, just ex- it's an exciting place to be. But I went out there and towed a boat back, and the guy didn't have insurance, didn't have the insurance at all, and um, he ended up paying six thousand dollars for me to go out there and have him tow him back. Wow, and I'm I'm sure the price has probably gone up since then. Uh, yeah, it's six thousand and three, I think. Yeah, <laughs> adjusted for inflation. Um, okay, great. So, what is uh, so? What do we have to look forward to for next week's episode? Uh, next week, I'm doing an interview uh, with a very dear friend of mine, uh, David Rigsby. Uh, David is uh, a poet. Um, David and I go back to knowing each other in the seventies. Um, I was the best man in one of his weddings. Uh, he's quite a character, very interesting man. Um, he's also maybe one of the finest poets in the world today. Um, and we're going to talk about something that's pretty much a tradition with sailors and that's poetry. Um, for many years, um, poetry often referred to sailing in the sea and the ocean. And David and I are going to go into a little bit of a in-depth discussion of some of the poetry that um, relates to the sailor in the sea. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Tony and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and